Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 18 through 21. And looking at the redemption that we have through our Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 17, just to establish the uh, beginning of the sentence. And then I'll read down through verse 21. So as I read for you the inspired Word of God, please listen to God's Word in reverence and in faith. Verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. I think you can summarize this passage in this way. That we should fear God with reverential awe because of His eternal purpose to redeem us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Verses 18 through 21 really expand on the idea that we are to fear God. And why should we fear God? And then last week we looked at the notion of what it means to fear God, but the last one that we looked at last week was the fear of the Lord refers to that reverential awe that we should have in the presence of our God. And Peter expands on that reverential awe, that sensing of the majesty, the glory of God, that fear, that worship that we should have of the Lord. Because from eternity past, God developed a plan to redeem us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that seems to be the idea that's connected in this passage. The word redeemed in verse 18 is a very interesting word because it really was a commercial term in the first century. It primarily was used of the ransom or the purchase price that you paid to someone to set a slave free from their bondage. It was used of paying all kinds of ransoms or redemptions, but it eventually would liberate and set someone free from an oppressive situation. And now the Scriptures use it in the context of salvation. That Christ redeemed us by His blood to set us free from our captivity and bondage to Satan and sin and the world itself. It's a precious term to redeem. But notice in verse 18, as Peter deals with the cost of our redemption, he really begins in verse 18 by 
saying that uh, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. So I want to begin by talking about why we needed to be redeemed. And he mentions that in verse 18 when he speaks of this futility, this way of life, this, this utter feudal lifestyle that we have inherited from our forefathers. And Peter says this is the reason why we needed to be redeemed because of our sin, because of the way we lived our life. And that life ultimately was described by one word, futility. Futility refers to something that is without value, unprofitable, meaningless, empty, ultimately doomed to failure. And this describes really the Gentile way of life. It's how the Jews would look at the Gentile world and said, you know, their lifestyle, their religions are just futility. The futility here is, again, probably associated with these Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but previously they were caught up in all the pagan idolatry of, of the area in which they lived. Paganism back there that was consumed with the worship of idols gave the depraved natural man exactly what he wanted. It was a worship of a God that would allow you to engage in immorality with temple prostitutes. It would allow you to pursue all the health and wealth of that uh, region by trying to appease the gods to bless you in all these ways. But it catered to the sin nature of man. And Peter is saying that all those idols are basically nothing but futility, deception, and lies. They'll promise you gold, but they'll pay in dross. They'll promise you heaven, but they'll lead to hell. And all of them ultimately are doomed to failure. It's futile to engage in those kinds of worship. It's like trying to build a castle out of soap bubbles. Can you use a hammer and nail? Can you use super glue? Soap bubbling didn't last very long. Utterly futile. Or their religion was like trying to put out a fire with gasoline and adding more wood. It's not going to work. It's doomed to failure. And Peter is saying, is all your background, all of your religions that were part of your paganism and your idolatry was utter futility. And no matter how great the accomplishments you may have had, how great the power, the wealth, the status, without Christ it is utterly futile, empty, and void of any lasting value. And though they build empires, they will all be blown away as chaff before the wind. It's interesting, Solomon, the wisest man in the, in the world at that time, who wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, fell away. It's a good warning that you can have wisdom today, but you can lose wisdom if you don't guard it carefully. Solomon had fallen away from the Lord, lived a wayward life in his prodigal years, wandered far away from the Lord. And he records in the book of Ecclesiastes how he tried his best during that period to find purpose and meaning in life 
through pleasure and worldly wisdom and drugs and building projects and gardens and great herds of livestock and wealth. But later as God's enabled him to see the truth behind all of that, and he came back to the Lord and wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, sharing the wisdom that he recovered. He said all of that former effort was nothing but vanity of vanities full of vanities. It's like chasing after the wind. It was doomed to failure. In other words, what he learned was a real meaning of life is not what you have or what you don't have. It's who you know. And on the day of judgment, our eternal destinies will not ultimately be determined by our riches, but by our relationship to Jesus Christ. This futility, this lifestyle of futility was inherited from their forefathers. So from generation to generation, these Gentile believers had been a part of, of this uh, passing on of this depraved spiritual DNA, this blindness to their children. They were just brought up in it. They inherited it from their, their pagan depraved forefathers. And this is why they need redemption. They needed to be saved out of that futility as do all sinners today as well. Because their lifestyle is equally full of emptiness and futility no matter how much they persuade themselves that it is not. And so Peter begins to tell them how they were redeemed. And he says in verse 18, not with perishable things like silver or gold. It's interesting that he begins with the negative. He says, you're not redeemed with silver and gold. Now, why did he mention silver and gold? Well, probably because back in that day, their idols were made out of silver and gold. So it may be a reference to their own idolatry. Those idols are not going to save you. They're not going to redeem you. They can't take away your sin. So you're not redeemed with silver and gold as in terms of your idols that you used to worship and bow down before. Or he could just have money in view. That money cannot buy your redemption. Money cannot pay the debt of your sins. God cannot be bought off with gold. And as the sons of Korah wrote about in Psalm 49, they wrote that even those, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, they need to understand something. And they need to understand that no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. You can never redeem a soul with money. You can betray someone with money as Judas did to our Lord with his 30 pieces of silver. But you can never redeem anyone with money. But he mentions here in verse 18 that silver and gold are perishable. Which is kind of interesting because in terms of metals and things, silver and gold are are quite lasting in their their value. Uh, They don't easily decay. I mean, they're quite resistant to corrosion and decay and they they can last for millenniums. Back in 1925, they discovered the tomb of the Egyptian King Tut. I'm sure you have read about it. 
who reigned back in the 14th century B.C. And there was a burial mask of solid gold that was in his tomb and it reflected his facial features. It was 22 inches tall, weighed over 22 pounds, had 321 ounces of gold, and still as bright and shiny and beautiful as it was when it was made about 3,500 years ago. So gold is not inherently easily perishable. So what does Peter have in mind? Gold is really quite durable. Well, he may very well have in mind what he will write about in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, when he will say that in the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So that even if you have gold and silver, which are quite durable, eventually it's going to perish. Everything in this world will perish ultimately. And don't even think that something that's as lasting as silver and gold can do anything to redeem your soul. The debt of sin is not a fine, like a speeding ticket. You know, you get pulled over, you get caught breaking the law, but what's the remedy? You pay the fine. It costs you a couple hundred bucks. But the debt of sin is not to pay a fine. Sin, not even a little sin, can be bought off and paid and redeemed through money. Because sin, all sin, any sin, the wages is death. The wages of sin is death. So it's death, not dollars, that are required for redemption. That's why money cannot redeem. It requires death to redeem, not dollars. And so then he speaks that you're redeemed... In verse 18, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but verse 19, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we are redeemed only by the precious blood of Christ. Now redemption therefore requires sacrificial blood for an atonement for sin. And in the Bible, really all blood is sacred. Even animal blood. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, they were forbidden to eat anything with the blood. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So how do you redeem? How do you atone for sin? It requires blood. And it requires for that blood to be spilt. And the Israelites therefore were not to eat meat with its blood. Because the blood even of sacrifices was dedicated to God. It was never to be consumed. And human blood is also sacred in the eyes of God. Even the blood of sinners is sacred. Remember that God told them Noah after he came out of the the ark. And he said that whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. 
So even if a sinner kills another sinner, that blood is sacred to God so that the murderer must be put to death. Because human blood, even of a sinner, is sacred to God. You remember when David longed to drink water from the well of Bethlehem, which was occupied by the Philistines back in the day. And his three mighty men heard David just utter that request, that desire, that longing and passing. And so they went into Bethlehem. They fought their way into Bethlehem, killing the Philistines. They made their way to the well of Bethlehem. They drew water, fought their way back out, and they brought the water back to David. You remember what David did with the water? Did he drink it? No, he poured it out unto the Lord. Because he said, Far be it from me, Lord, shall I drink the blood of men who went in jeopardy of their own lives. Even the risking of their life, the shedding of their blood and fighting their way in, possibly the risk of being killed, the potential of shedding their blood. David said, that that makes that water too sacred. I won't even drink it. I'll pour it out to the Lord. So that blood is precious. You can't live without it. But when blood is sacrificed, then the life is given. The death comes. And that's what's necessary for us to be redeemed. We're redeemed by blood because the shedding of blood brings death and pays the penalty, the wages of our sin, which is death. So Christ's blood is precious blood. Precious beyond degree. For at least two reasons. Number one, because of who He is. Christ's blood is infinitely more precious and superior to any other human blood because of who He is. Because His blood belongs to the holy, sinless Son of God who became incarnate, who came down from heaven and took to Himself a second nature, a human nature, yet without sin. So that the blood of Jesus Christ is not just normal human blood. He has two natures. He's fully man, but He's also fully God. And when He shed His blood, it was the blood of a person who is both God and man. And that was necessary for that blood to be able to atone for our sins. He must identify with us. He must be a human. But He must be able to offer His life to pay the infinite penalty of sin that we deserve. He must be God. He must be fully man. And He must be fully God. It's interesting in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it speaks that God purchased the church with His own blood. Now, God doesn't have blood in His divine nature, but the human nature of Jesus did. But again, those two have the two natures of His deity and His humanity have communion together in that one person, Jesus Christ. So that the shedding of His blood was precious beyond degree. It was precious beyond our ability to fully understand. So His blood was precious because of who He is, but also because of what He did. He was the Lamb of God for us. In verse 19. With the precious blood as of a lamb 
unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. So when you read this in verse 19, you know, you ask yourself, well, okay, he mentions the lamb. What lamb is Peter thinking about? And we could probably break that down into two ways. Number one, he probably had the Passover lamb in mind that we read about earlier from Exodus chapter 12. The Passover lamb. Remember the description that we read back in Exodus 12? It must be unblemished, a male one year old. So a young lamb without any blemish at all. No dark spots in his white coat. His wool. And obviously that's a picture of Christ's sinlessness, His purity, His holiness. He is our Lamb of God, unblemished and spotless. He was the Lamb that was sacrificed on the cross like the Passover Lamb to save us from the avenging angel of death. And whatever Jewish household took that blood and applied it to the sides and the top of that door when that avenging angel of death came and saw the blood, it passed them by. They were redeemed. They were saved. They were delivered from death by the blood of that Lamb. And Jesus Christ is referred to as our Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians 5-7 by the Apostle Paul. He came and died on the cross. He suffered in our place. His blood was shed. He gave His life. He died for us so that we are forgiven of our sins and no longer under the curse of death. So He probably has the Passover lamb in view. But many commentators suggest He may also have that great prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verse 7 also in view. Which says He was oppressed referring to the suffering servant as the Lamb of God, our Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So that the Lamb of God is a picture for the coming of Jesus Christ, who like a lamb would be slaughtered for us. Earlier in verse 5, Isaiah records the nature of his death when it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And Peter records the fulfillment of this in 1 Peter 2.24 that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God that saved us from our sins and saved us from the penalty of eternal death by dying for us, by shedding His precious blood. Some of the blessings that flow from this precious blood of Christ are are many. But obviously one of them is that it completely washes away all of our sins. Though our sins be as scarlet, They are now white as snow for everyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ. Though we are lepers by nature, He has cleansed us. The disease has been paid. It's been removed. Not that we don't still struggle with sin. We do. But the condemnation, the guilt, 
the judgment for our sins have been completely washed away by His blood. He brought us out from under the curse of the law. The law curses us for our sin and our failure, but the blood heals us or blesses us. The law kills us because of our disobedience, but the blood of Christ makes us alive. The law condemns us for our sin, but the blood of Christ justifies us by God's grace through faith in Christ. So that now we are free, we're forgiven, we're blessed by the blood, that precious blood of Christ that no one else could do for us. His blood is also effectual in the sense that it completely satisfied the wrath and justice of God for our sin. I love those verses in Hebrews chapter 9. that says, Through His own blood, that precious blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He paid the full price so that He won for us eternal redemption. It will last forever. So that Christ sat down after He got to heaven, He sat down at the right hand of God Almighty as proof that He had actually finished His work. It was totally complete. He had fully satisfied God's justice so that now our redemption has been effectually brought to pass by His blood. We're untouchable by the wrath of God. There's none of it left. His blood fully absorbed and paid the price in full for our redemption. It was effectual for every believer in Jesus Christ. It's also eternal in its value. His blood will never lose its, its power. Once you're forgiven, you can never be charged again with your sins. Once set free, you can never be enslaved again. Once justified, you can never be condemned. The value and blessing and redemption from His blood is everlasting. It also has a power to melt a heart of stone. You know, chromium, I think, is, a, is the hardest metal on earth. And its melting point is about 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit to melt chromium. But the human heart is harder than chromium. And nothing can melt it but the grace of God and the Spirit of God when it brings redeeming love of Jesus Christ and presses it upon that heart. The hardest of hearts when the Spirit of God takes that Gospel, that truth about the redeeming blood of Christ, and it can melt the hardest of human hearts when the Spirit of God is at work. I love the words of Augustus Toplady when he said, Law and terrors do but harden all the while they work alone. But a sense of blood-bought pardon soon dissolves a heart of stone. And that's what brings people to Jesus Christ. When the precious blood of Christ is presented to them as the only way they can find forgiveness and they see the love of God for them, 
They see the grace of God for them accomplishing what they could never do. And the Spirit of God works in their heart and makes them alive in in Christ. And they come alive spiritually. And they see the, the gospel of the blood of Christ. And it melts their heart. It brings them to Christ that He and He alone can provide salvation for my soul. And this is the power of that precious blood. When the Spirit of God is at work... Bringing that message home to the hearts of sinners. And finally, it can motivate holy living when we realize the cost that Jesus Christ paid to save you and me from our sin. It should motivate us to live for Him. As Paul says in Corinthians, He died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. See, the blood of Christ has released us from the bondage to idolatry of self. He has released us from that self-centered lifestyle that dominates us. Now we've been set free so we can live for Christ, our Savior, our Master, our Lord. And it's the blood of Christ Seeing the cost, the precious sacrifice that the Father gave His only begotten Son that stirs us to want to live for Him and no longer just live for ourselves. Well, quickly in verse 20, we look at the timing of our redemption. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Notice it says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now this is more than just the Father knowing that the Son existed. It's far more than just Him having mere knowledge of His whereabouts. But the NIV translation actually translates verse 20, He was chosen before the foundation of the world. Because they understand that in the Bible, this foreknowledge isn't talking just about knowledge of things. But it's actually referring to that special knowledge and love that the Father has for the Son within the covenant of redemption planned before time ever began. That's the foreknowledge. He was foreknown by the Father from before the foundations of the world in eternity past. The Father and the Son and the Spirit had a covenant, an agreement whereby the Son agreed to come down and die for sinners and pay the full ransom price owed to God. This is that foreknowledge that's being referred to. Same word occurred back in verse 2 of us. And there it speaks of God setting His covenant love and special knowledge upon us as the objects of that eternal covenant of redemption. But here in verse 20, it refers to the agent of our redemption, the Son of God, who agreed to pay the price, to shed His blood, to die in our place, to save us from our sins. Now why does Peter mention that in verse 20? He wants his readers to know that, look, your redemption is not something I just came up with on the spur of the moment. This was something we planned in eternity past before we created the heavens and the earth. We planned your redemption. All of this was planned out before anything was created. This is not plan B. This is no afterthought. This is no attempt by God to salvage 
some good out of his failure with the nation of Israel. No, this was his plan A from the beginning, from before eternity, or in eternity past. Christ was crucified. He, was rede- he came to redeem you. And then in time, verse 20, he appeared. Notice he wasn't created. The Son of God appeared. He existed before that. And he ushered in the last times. He ushered in salvation history and ultimately the last phase of human history before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond? Well, this, this is godly fear that we need to respond with these truths in fearing God. We should be motivated by the knowledge of the cost of Christ shedding His blood by the eternal plan and historical fulfillment in, in Jesus Christ who came as our Lamb of God. And He did all of this, Peter says, for you. He did it for you. And all of this is to give us that glorious hope that He speaks of in the last verse when He says, for you who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So now he kind of concludes with this concept that Christ was raised and given glory after His death on the cross, and that we now are believers in God and we have hope in God through Jesus Christ, through the shedding of the precious blood of our Lamb. That's the hope that we have. And though we may be going through various trials now, we have hope of glory. We have hope of grace to come because God rescued us from the empty futility of our former lives and redeemed us from all of our sins through the precious blood of His Son, our Lamb. So we're pilgrims now on our way to see Christ in heaven. And what a glorious hope that is for everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Christ. As the hymn writer reminds us, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's why we should fear God. We should reverence God. Because before we were living lives of utter futility. There's nothing we could do to change it. But God in His great love sent His Son to come down as a Lamb of God. And He and He alone could sacrifice Himself for us. To die for us. To bear our sins and endure the wrath of God. And completely pay that price. Without which you and I must stand before God and one day pay that price ourselves. But He offers you that gift. The Lamb has died. The sin has been paid for. But you must come and repent and believe in Christ to receive that free gift. See, none of the people back in the Passover Lamb would have their firstborn rescued and freed and delivered without the blood on the door. And that's a picture that we cannot be forgiven of our sins unless there is, we have applied and appropriated the blood of Christ upon the doors of our heart by faith in Him. Have you come to Christ and confessed your sins 
and believed upon Him that His precious blood alone can save you. And it will save you if you put your faith and trust in Christ and in effect apply the blood to the doorposts of your heart. And then the debt has been paid and you have hope of glory to come. Well, may God give us all that hope, that faith to look forward to all that Christ's blood has accomplished for us. For again, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And I trust that you have come under that flood and put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. It is precious blood indeed. Well, it's our privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not only the blood, but also the bread. And this is a meal, a fellowship meal with our living Savior who's now in heaven watching down upon us at this moment. Who calls us to have fellowship with Him by remembering His death on the cross for us. By taking the bread and the cup and letting them remind us of His sacrifice so that we would respond in love and praise and holy fear before Him. Again, this is for believers only. So if you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, we ask you to contemplate your status before God. We're all sinners. There's a day of judgment coming. And only Jesus can forgive you. And we ask you, we call upon you to come to Christ in faith. And He's promised He will save you. But for believers, we now have the privilege of taking bread, which is a reminder of His physical body, which was crucified on the cross, to speak of His love for you and for me, that He was willing to do this to save us. So as we break the bread and pass it, let's begin by just thanking the Lord for the bread. So let's pray. Father, we do thank You, Lord, for sending Your Son to be our Lamb of God. For He was fully God and fully man. The only one qualified to be able to redeem us from our sins. We thank You for His love for us that He was willing to come and sacrifice it all and lay it all upon the altar of the cross and fully take our sins, every single filthy one of them, and endure the pouring out of the wrath of God And He fully absorbed it and endured it and paid that penalty in full. And Lord, as we hold the bread, the symbol of the bread of His body in our hands, Lord, just draw our hearts to You in worship as we reflect on the magnitude and the greatness of Your love for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.